second time's the charm. Second time's the charm. <laughs> sure. For for the record, everybody, we've done this once before, and Zoraida was amazing, and we were not, and then I lost the file. So it's on me. Hello, I'm Sarah <laughs> McLean. I write romance novels, and I read romance novels, and I'm not good at audio files. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Prokop. I am a romance reader and critic, and I'm super excited about having a second chance at a very important topic, and our guest today is Zoraida Cordova. Welcome. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Zoraida, thank you for joining us. You're, from, you're in Puerto Rico right now. I am in Puerto Rico. I put all my stuff in storage in the beginning of the year or the end of the end of last year. And I was like, peace out, New York. See you soon. <laughs> Did, was that just because you were like, I cannot sit in my apartment one more second during a pandemic? Because that yes, is how I feel. Because my brother and I were living together. We've been living together for years, but I have a one bedroom. He lives in my living room. When the pandemic started, usually he went to work every day and we saw each other like when he came home at night or he stayed at his girlfriend's house, but, um, in the evenings and I, that was no longer possible when it's like, oh, we're both home and we have to quarantine together and look, I love you. To each other's faces. (laughs) Yeah. In a, in a one bedroom. Um, so I finally got sick of it. My uncles have an apartment in Puerto Rico that they don't, they don't live in anymore. Um, neither of them are Puerto Rican, but like, one of my uncles bought the property in the eighties and it's just been here. And now I, I was like, Hey, can I go right there for a few months? And they were like, sure. You just have to pay for your own internet. And I was like, great. No, I can do this. Sold. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> and yeah, I'm to- also at a contract. So I'm like, let me just go do this while I figure out another book to write. <laughs> So, like, are you pandemicking there? Is it, how's it, how does it feel there? It feels, are you, did you get, did you get the shot? I got my first shot. I've seen her Instagram and it looks beautiful. That's what you need oh, to know. Yeah, I'm no, it's gorgeous. Like, oh, so beautiful. Yeah, it, so the locals are taking it very, very seriously because there's a limited access to hospitals. There's one island in Puerto Rico called Vieques and, like, they have, like, a handful of, ferries that go back and forth and usually tourists take up so much of it and there's no hospital in that island there are a lot of tourists who are were behaving really badly during spring break like shirts off you know screaming in the streets no masks um so it's been interesting just watching tourist culture during a pandemic because it's like people leave and they come to this island and they're like, okay, I left coronavirus behind in the United States. But one, this is still the United States technically because mm-hmm. um, it's a colony essentially. And two, the pandemic is still here. <laughs> right. But the beaches are safe because, you know. Outside. According to the CDC, Right lots of wind. And so that's been really nice to be able to just take walks and and think and, you know, agonize Well, just being outside. I'm living (laughs) your New York City life here and it still feels like I got, I have both shots now and I still feel like trapped in my house with these people. Yeah, I, same. I've been fully vaccinated for six weeks and I'm still like, I'm going to just stay home. It's fine. Although I did go to a bar last week for the first (gasps) time with a couple people after work on Friday and it was, it was so nice. Someone brought me a nachos. And then took some away. brought you nachos. And a Moscow mule in like the actual Moscow mule cup. 
right? I Yeah. Oh my God. That sounds beautiful. I can't wait to go. I have yet to go to like a bar by myself. I've been to, I had a couple of friends visit me. Um, one of my best friends who's a romance literary agent, she stayed with me for a month and, and worked remotely. And we would go to some restaurants, but yeah, I really miss, I really miss social gatherings so much. Same. Well, this is like a social gathering. It is. <laughs> it's actually For nothing Sarah. like that, but we're looking at each other, so that's a thing. Close. Um, Zoraida, you are here to talk about fantasy romance because you write fantasy romance. Yeah, I listened to one of your other episodes, the one where you answer questions. Uh, yeah. And I know that you had somebody ask about yes. fantasy romance. What are we doing? Why don't we have more of it? I think <laughs> is the big question. Before we get into it, I want to talk about Zoraida because yes, we're obviously going to talk about her books, but I want to talk about her as like, you know, a person and also about how I basically forced her to know me, which everybody who listens to the podcast <laughs> knows that this is what I do to people. <laughs> and her amazing romances. So which some of which are not fancy, right? So you've written I mean, well, that's I. You're like a to, triple threat. You could write anything you she's want. She's great at everything, <laughs> and also very fast. Like it does. It's a lot to take in, Zoraida. <laughs> she's very good, and she writes really fast, and she writes in all sorts of genres. She's just yeah. But I found Zoraida through her contemporaries back in the day. Like now, it feels like those were a million years ago. 2016. Yeah. They're actually 2016. Not they're not a million years ago. No, it it's actually that way, though. before that. It's 20, it was 2014 for sure. Okay. That feels better. That feels better. Sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, those, and those books are not available anymore except for audio. Oh, interesting. Oh, well, so you can listen to them on audio. The two that I really love are Lock on the Line, which is about an arrogant chef. And everybody knows that I love an arrogant chef. Mm-hmm. And the daughter of like a sexy Martha Stewart. Yes, Martha Stewart style, you know, mom. And sorry, um, I'm still like having a sexy Martha Stewart moment. (laughs) I'm fine. I'm totally fine, everybody. This is like uh, Chris Jenner with Martha Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is actually perfect. If they made a baby, it would be this mom. Um, And then the other one, but the one that I think I read first probably was Life on the Level, which... Um, is the third one in that series. And the heroine has a gambling addiction and is going to rehab. And she has like a one-night stand the night before she enters rehab for gambling addiction with the counselor at the rehab center. Listen, And now listen, I mean, Adriana Herrera right now is going, that's not okay. (laughs) But like, (laughs) is it even a romance novel one night stand if it's not with like your boss, your coworker, your therapist the next day? Oh no. I will say he's he's not not technically her. I know you're very careful. (laughs) He's not technically her. He's a counselor. counselor. It's still not allowed. (laughs) Well, I'm for it. As everyone knows, I like a doctor patient romance. I'm the doctor. You wait on the wait list. Patients been here since this morning. I dismiss. Don't at me. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't but at me. that is where. So that's where it began. Mm-hmm. My love affair uh, for Zoraida's books, and then you wrote more contemporaries as Zoe Castile mm-hmm. wrote uh, the Happy Endings series, which began with Stripped and ended with Hired and Flashed. Flash. Flash. Which Flash is the end. Mm-hmm. Hired, stripped, hired, flashed. 
Um, and those were all about men who were adjacent to sex work. Some of them were more sex worky than others. You know who sent me that book is Norma at Kensington. That's my editor. And I don't know if I've never ever, we've ever said Norma at Kensington is like, is she just like the most amazing person in real life? She just seems like the most amazing person. She's like a joy bomb. She is. She is. She's a joy fairy. She is like a fairy godmother to a lot of books, specifically like Latino romance or POC romances. Uh, She's so exuberant and she loves stories and loves her authors. And so I was really, I think I was one of her first, I think I was her first acquisition. Wow. That's so cool. Very special. I saw her at RWA and I just thought we'd have plenty of time together. And we just did that thing at each other where I was like, and she was like, Jen. And then we (laughs) went our separate ways. And now I'm like, one day. I'll be back. But of in course New she York. sent it to you because she was like, you gotta read yeah. these like amazing this, like, stripper book. Abs- and I was which like, was you're basically right, like I do. Magic Mike fanfic. It was. It, that's what I called it. I mean, I'm really for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I pitched it, I think. I was like, it's Magic Mike Double XL fanfic. <laughs> What's wild? So you wrote these six contemporaries, which would have taken me six years. And instead, <laughs> you wrote these six contemporaries, and then you wrote like 20 to 30 other books at the same time. <laughs> I am very prolific. Yeah. So you're writing, so you're, so you wrote all these contemporaries and then you were writing, um, you've written fantasy, YA fantasy, adult fantasy, um, Star Wars tie-ins. Yeah. Is that? My Star Wars, t- I write middle grade. If you have, middle grade. If, like if you're a romance reader, but you have children, uh, I have middle grade. I have one middle grade out with Scholastic, and I'm currently working on the second middle grade, which is called Valentina Salazar is Not a Monster Hunter. And that's basically like, I wanted to take Supernatural, the TV show, and gender bend it and have like sisters and one brother uh, monster hunting around the country. I'm going to pencil you in for my class because I'm a middle school (laughs) teacher. So I'm all like, yeah, come talk to my students. It's amazing. (laughs) So... But let's talk and, about fantasy. But, like, fantasy yeah. is where your heart lies, right? Fantasy is where I started. So I started with a novel called The Vicious Deep, and that was Mermaids in Coney Island. Um, it It's a teenage boy discovers, you know, essentially he was, like, Ariel's son and has to quest to become the next sea king, right? And so after that trilogy, I started writing. My, my agent basically dared me to write a romance novel um, because I kept saying, like, I kept talking about it. And she was like, well, then just, you know, just shut up and do it. I dare you. And I, you know, never resist a dare. Um, Wait, can I pause on this mermaid thing? Because I'm having a flashback to a time when you and I did a panel together and there was a lot of discussion about where mermen kept their penises. Yeah, there's a line. That's in your book. That's in my teen fiction novel, yes. Mm-hmm. My my main character. That's a good question. It's a boy and he has a guardian and his guardian, he's like, he's like, okay, I turned into a merman. <laughs> uh, turns to his guardian who's like, yo, bro, where does it go? Where does, you know, and his guardian's like, don't worry, there's a pocket. And so that was like, (laughs) (laughs) I created the Hot Pocket, um, (laughs) which Guillermo, uh, not Guillermo, um, yeah, it was a Guillermo. Yeah, 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 in Shape of the Water. Water, Shape of the Water. Uh, He's my same mermaid anatomy theory. Well, maybe he's a fan. (laughs) Maybe he's a fan. Has that occurred to you? (laughs) (laughs) I spent too much time thinking about how cryptids fuck. 
I like it. It's important. This is the thing. We're going to get to world building, and I think it's important to know where the penis is. It absolutely is important to know where the penis is. Okay. So I cut you off though. So yeah. So I, then I started, my agent dare essentially dared me to write romance. And I, I, so I started writing at that point, the, the, the romance books that I had mostly read were, were pretty much Nora Roberts. Were you a fic writer before? Like fanfic? Yeah. Did you come through fanfic? No, no, no. I actually have never read fan fiction. Same. Me neither. (laughs) Some people come through that now. Yeah, it's like, right. It's a really you know, common thing. Yeah, pathway. it's a very common thing. I mean, I, yeah, I've never read it. I, I just don't know why. I think that I'm, maybe it's the author in me, but I'm happy to accept the ending that a lot of right. people give me, even if it's a tragic one, right? Like, I fucking hate the way Buffy the Vampire Slayer yes, ends right, Buffy sure. and Angel, right? But it's fine. They, you know, it's a character journey. I'm going to say something off topic. Though I really believe that if I could get AO3 on like my Kindle as opposed to on like a computer screen, I would probably read it. I really think it's like a formatting issue for me. And I know oh, that makes, really? that sounds bananas. But when I look at like fanfic and it's just like on a screen and kind of scrolling forever, I'm just like, meh. I don't know. It's if this yeah, is for the me. format's really well. I did go onto AO3 once um, because somebody told me that there was a Raylo fanfic that I needed to read. And for I like it just wasn't meant to be because I didn't have internet that day or like yeah. something happened. I was in the mountains and like, you know. You need a guide too. I think if you find someone yeah. who's like, these yeah. are the ones to read, then you can die. You need right. Adriana. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Tell you what stucky fanfic to read. <laughs> <laughs> she just sends you links and you read that. My journey through writing, starting out writing YA romance, I mean, YA urban fantasy, what I consider to be urban fantasy, um, and moving, shifting to things like contemporary contemporary romance. Um, I have a magical realism adult novel coming out in September called The Inheritance of Orchidia Divina. Um, writing a love story for Star Wars, I feel like my journey has been into realizing that what I actually want to write about is our love stories and romance set in, with, in magical worlds. And I just need to get a publisher to let me write it exclusively. Because the more I write books, the more romance I put into my YA and adult, adult romance is a given because that's, you know, sure. that's we, we know that that's what the plot is. But um, I'm, I have been craving more uh, high fantasy with, uh, high fantasy with romance as the main plot. And people, every time I ask for suggestions, people give me the same books, and I'm like, that has one romantic scene in it. You don't know what you're talking about. Right, right. <laughs> well, so, can, I mean, so already we have, like, a. I think it'd be really important to have, like, a definition kind of phase of the podcast, right? So yes. you mentioned urban fantasy and high fantasy, and then there's paranormal. So one reason I think um, romance readers get a little confused is that all is the same or they don't know how to ask for what they want. So sure. can you talk to us about some of those genre definitions? Yes. Um, there are a lot of subcategories to 
what fantasy is. And I think all of it is under the umbrella of speculative fiction. Speculative fiction was coined, um, I'm pretty sure it was coined by Robert Heinlein in like 1950 or 1940, end of 1940s, whatever. Um, And he wrote Starship Troopers. And I really love that movie as a kid because I felt naughty watching it because (laughs) men and women showered together and there was like a sex scene like under the covers. And like, I really wanted that couple to be together. And then also like guns and bugs in space, right? (laughs) So like, that was the, that like, I should have known that this is what I wanted. Um, So speculative fiction just asks the question, what if, what if, you know, what if hobbits were real? What if vampires were real? What if, what if, you know, uh, we colonize the moon and whatever. So that goes into science fiction, which is uh, a world with technology, right? Aliens, robots, things like that. Um, Science fantasy, which is more like space opera, um, Star Wars, Star Trek is more, so like, if you think about it, Star Trek, science fiction, Star Wars, science fantasy, because it's like, give me the hydro space carburetor and put it in, you know, whatever. That's how I wrote my Star Wars novel. (laughs) Um, And then you go to things like dystopian, right? Like all of that is sci-fi. And then when you move into the fantasy section of speculative fiction, you have sword and sorcery, high fantasy, epic fantasy, you know, the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Witcher, uh, Shadow and Bone. um, And then you have things like low fantasy uh, or contemporary fantasy and urban fantasy, which sort of fit in the same place, which is just like the real world with a magical overlay. And then within that urban fantasy to me is like New York with magic. That's my, the vicious deep trilogy. That's my Brooklyn Bruja series. So like literal urban centers. Yes. There's some conversation around this, um, which has changed over the last few years where, um, more authors of color, specifically black authors, um, call it contemporary fantasy because urban fantasy sort of ignores the like real life issues like race and things like that, right? Like true blood, true blood doesn't really deal with race. It also, it's not really urban because it takes place in like the South. South, Yeah. Um, But authors like LL McKinney um, and Bethany C. Morrow, who are YA authors writing about mermaids and uh, demons in, you know, in the real world, um, they call it, but about black protagonists, young black girls facing problems, like magical problems, they, they also don't want the stigma of being called urban because in romance, am I correct in saying that there's like urban romance was considered a, like a yes, like, like black urban romance. fiction. Right. Yeah, yeah. Is right. Yeah, exactly. So they don't want to be called that rightly. So, right. There's like the stigma of that. So they call it contemporary fantasy. Um, both of those to me are correct uh, for my work. Um, and then magical realism and fables and fairy tales, you know, those things are also fantasy to me. Um, and then dark fantasy, which combines horror, um, into the fantasy world. 
Like who? Give us an example of that. Um, dark fantasy, something I would call like a uh, Pan's Labyrinth or uh, Crimson Peak, um, things like that. Can I? Guillermo del Toro's like entire yeah. oeuvre. Yeah, his, his, his that's oeuvre. So <laughs> um, can I ask a question? So when I, so everybody knows I'm a middle school teacher, and like talking about genres is sort of like right, and sort of sometimes I talk about you know speculative fiction, and then science fiction versus fantasy. And one way that's kind of easy to under, like kind of explain it to kids is like science fiction is about technology and fantasy is about magic. Does that feel true? Or do you think like that that's. No, that feels true. Okay. That feels true. You know, they're both speculative fiction, but you know, that's why star Wars is in such a strange place as a space opera. Sure. Because it has you have the force size fantasy. Yeah, the right. force is magic. But you right? also have, you know, warp speed Space or wizards. whatever. Right, sure. <laughs> well, because it's, I mean, so many things are not purely one or the other. A lot of things can combine, right? Right. A lot of things mash up genres. Right. And if you look at something like the Avengers. Fonda. Or the right. Marvel Universe or whatever. The Marvel yeah. Universe. Fonda Lee has a series called Jade City, which, um, she calls uh, like a kung fu contemporary fantasy, where it's like mobs, um, like mob fa- mobster families who use this like jade magic. Um, but it's very, very like modern cars, cell phones, you know, internet, like uh, political bound borders. Like it's it's very modern, but it's still high fantasy because the countries are all made up. Is that so? Is that I think when I think of. High fantasy, I think, like, I'm going to need a map for this. Yeah, it's just, you do need a map, absolutely. <laughs> it's just not in medieval times. This is where, like, yeah, I, right. how much in the dark I am on fantasy, on discussing fantasy. I'm like, well, there's books that I need maps for and books that I don't need maps You know what, though? For. I, so I was talking to a couple of, like, women in my book club, and I was sort of, like, one of the things that sometimes frustrates me about fantasy is I was like, they're always like walking around everywhere. Like, why are like there's it's always a road trip, right? And yeah, one of the quest. things, yeah, it's a quest. And one of the things that um, Kat said in my book club is, and then I felt like the dumbest person ever. She's like, well, of course, because in a good fantasy, like the landscape is a character, mm-hmm. and you want to show it off. And the only way you can do that is having people be like walking around through it or traveling through it. And I was like, oh, that totally makes sense. would love to see maps in contemporary fiction, right? Like well, historical contemporary. I don't know shit about like <laughs> like Regency England. I need a map to show me where this Kensington Gardens is and Bath and all these places. Like, I need great. a map. Give me a map. I love a map, Sarah. period, honestly. <laughs> you want a map. <laughs> I want a map in your next book because I'm like, where are they? I think I'm like, everything takes place in London, right? Like, yeah, right. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> well, Who cares? Back to being, being a middle school English teacher. Like, winding, right, winding roads. Re- lots reading, of buildings. <laughs> reading strategies are for everyone. And there's a reason why, like, maps can help us, like, place characters in time and space. But I love that idea of, like, in a really good fantasy, the world itself is a character. So you want to show it off. 
the world should be a character, but also your world should make sense without having that map in the front, right? Like you have to be able to explain the different countries and the different, you know, Shadow and Bone is a, is an example of this. Um, since the movie's out, I feel like I can, the TV show's out. Yeah. I feel like I can talk about that more. Um, Lee Bardugo creates very distinct uh, cu- cultures um, that are not just like generic fill in the blank European centric, like Andalasia, you know, made up words. Um, she has language roots and society like expectations and cultural codes and things like that. So interestingly, can we talk, I, can we talk a little bit about maps? Because I do feel like in, you have a map in your most recent Illusionary. Book. Yeah. Illusionary and Sunday. And it's a map old. of New York city. Where, what? Where? Wait, no. Oh, yes. My Brooklyn Bruja series. In Bro- yeah, in Brooklyn, have- not in Illusionary. Yeah, my Brooklyn Bruja series, uh, the, the book Bruja Born, the second book, has a map of New York City. And because, now, why? Yeah, why? Because mm-hmm. I wanted to show where the magical points were. Um, also, I had a map in book one, and I knew I was going to have a map in book three, so I wanted to mm-hmm. be consistent. Right. Um, and in the book there's a scene where they're looking at a map of New York to look at where all the zombies are. So like Bruja Born is basically like, it's not an anti-love story, but it's like a self-love story, right? The book starts off with the line, like, this is not a, this, this is a love story. And then it progresses to like, this is, is not a love story. This was never a love story. Um, and you know, it's about letting go of toxic relationships through the metaphor of like, this girl turns her boyfriend into a zombie along with like, dozens of other New Yorkers. Um, And so in the map, you can see like where the hordes of zombies are. And I was like, it would be cool to show that in the print book and to sort of see where they're going. Because I feel like for people outside of New York, when you're like, and then they took the A train and the G train and the whatever train. Well, it's like London, you don't know. Yeah, exactly. So So I thought that was important. Do you start when, so let's, we're going to get into world building, I feel like a little bit with this because- Jen, you have a. You, I just. You're like, I, no, I'm not ready. I, I'm not ready. <laughs> I I really feel like before we do that, I really want to talk about the difference between fantasy and paranormal, and maybe it'll come later. But I feel like when I was saving it for later. Okay, then perfect. Let's do it later. Let's bring it in later when okay. we're talking about sex. Perfect. Okay. Okay. So I was listening to Sarah Ennie's podcast the other day, and she had Victoria Aviard on, who wrote sure. the Red Queen, and has a new book out. This month. So, um, we, so, and one of the things that she was talking about is, you know, when she sits down and she, she starts with the world, she like builds the map. She writes high fantasy. So she, you know, builds the map first and thinks about in the way that you were talking about Lee Bardugo, like thinks about what is the landscape look like? What are the cultures like in all these places? How are the borders drawn relating to mountains and rivers and Whatever. And I'm sort of curious about, and so I think this is why often in writing, when we talk about world building, and this is true when people go to writers' conferences, there's always like one or two workshops that are on world building. And when you're a baby writer, often you say, oh, well, I'm not writing fantasy, so I don't need to go to that one. And I think that often we writers make the mistake of, those of us who don't write fantasy make the mistake of saying like, that's a problem for people who write something other than what we write. And that, I mean, we all know that's not true. So could you talk a little bit about world building and what we can all learn from fantasy? Absolutely. Maybe start with your own 
style and then yeah yeah um so the when i world build i actually start with character first right victoria aviard her first series was dystopian so it was like it used to be america in the past but now it is the future and we call it something else and there's magic um and but for in my books i start with a character and the character tells me as much as i'm going to know about the world in that first instance of thinking of them. So my mermaid series, I was in Coney Island and I was at the beach <laughs> and there was a very handsome, cute lifeguard who's around my age. Um, I think I was like 20. And I thought, what if he was a merman? <laughs> and then that spiraled into Coney Island has all of this like mermaid words and like you know the streets mermaid lore all over the place the mermaid parade parade. every street is named after something aquatic and and then i thought what if the reason is because like 50 every so years the mermaids return to coney island and if they return what are they here for? And what if this time they return early and they come for that lifeguard? And what is that lifeguard's name? And what is his story? And that is literally, that was that was my train of thought when I came up with this book. And because I world build from character up, which a lot of my contemporaries and other friends, uh, they, they started with world first and then moved to character. But the reason I start with character is because this is the person that's going to carry me through the narr- through the narration, through the, the quest. This is their story. And I believe that your character at the beginning of the story, they are being influenced by the world, but by the end of the story, they should be in, they should be doing the influencing. They, should be the one making change and like you know that's the whole point of this right we're going on a hero's journey so the hero has now learned all this stuff about the world and then they in turn use all that knowledge to save the day and and create change um and so that's why i start with character first but i also have to ask myself uh, nk jemison who is uh you know you both are nodding so you right. know exactly. <laughs> yes um nk jemison has a lecture on her website where she has something called the cultural iceberg oh yeah this is a really cool thing yeah and the cultural iceberg shows that culture is like an iceberg. You see, there are things that you see on the surface, skin tone, hair, clothing, right? Right. And then there are the things that are surface level right beneath that. And when you're building a fantasy world, you have to answer all these things like, uh, my current fantasy novel, Illusionary, which is the sequel to Incendiary. It's based on, inspired by 15th century Spain. So I had to ask myself, like, in this world inspired by ancient Spain, like, what do people eat? What? How do they communicate love? How do they say uh, please and thank you? Um, how do they show class? How do they... Like if if they only eat uh, a X diet, where does this meat come from? Who are the people farming this? Who if they um, if they haven't invented a specific color, what is the actual color that like royalty wears versus what peasants wear? And and if and and how is, does their geography affect what is farmed? Right. Mm-hmm. Because I can't call it New World Fantasy and then have things like tomatoes and corn and you know, potatoes and things like that. Right. Cause that's all the new right. world. Right. Um, 
And, and so that's, that's, that's how my brain works when I'm world building. No, but I think this is so fascinating because I think starting from character is, I mean, it's how I work too, which is why whenever I hear a fantasy author say like, well, I build the map first. I have to look at what the world looks like first. I'm like, why? Yeah. (laughs) Because for me, it feels like, well, why don't you just put a river where you need a river? Exactly. That's what I do. (laughs) And like draw it into your map. (laughs) After that, I figure out, like, I have the very, have a very old geology, geography textbook, uh, whatever the one with, like, topography is. Um, That's how much I read it. (laughs) And I look up, like, well, how are rivers formed? And so if I do need a river, I shift, I shift the landscape to the way that I need the story to move, which is what I did with Labyrinth Lost. When I wrote Labyrinth Lost, you know, this girl cast a curse to send to like get rid of her powers but instead she gets rid of her family and sends them to another dimension has to go to that other dimension to get them back and so the journey i i knew what i needed i wanted it to feel like a descent into like you know her own personal hell and i just put everything where i needed to be put like it's my you know i'm the i'm the writer like i'm not gonna let Mountains dictate me. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really important, though, to say that as a reader, I guess I would say, it's clear to me that people really can tell if the world building is not careful, right? So I had someone, like a book I loved, someone was like, yeah, I couldn't read that. Like, they stopped to eat eggs, but it was like a thousand years in the future. And I was like, Okay, fair enough. I didn't even think about it. But I really do think that, like, readers who care deeply about world building are going to really tune in, not just to, like, sort of, you know, paying attention to that cultural iceberg, but the the things that don't make sense together or, like, the holes in the world building, right? The way that it's it's sort of just using something else. And I think that that must be really fun as an author to like be, I don't know, like poking your own world and seeing where you have to like build up more or take away, or, you know, you probably do entire things that then don't make it in the book, but you know that they're there. Yeah. I mean, I look at something like something even, even show you have to like a very specific kind of, and, and messy world building sounds rude, but that's what it is, right? It's messy right. world building. Something like The Witcher, which I don't believe that the books do this. I haven't read the books yet. I started reading one and I was like, opening chapter, he's having sex with a prostitute. And I was just like, you know, I'm done. I'm, I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just watch uh, Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill's thighs do the in, work for right. you. No, <laughs> but like in that show, um, there are there's a race of elves, but the race of elves have like random black people and random Indian people and ran, like everyone is whatever race, but that doesn't make sense to me because humans are already separated by race. So how come the elves are not? And and so it doesn't answer these this the questions that um I feel like somebody should have been asking from the beginning, right? Like where do these elves actually come from? So it doesn't do that world building Mm -hmm. and it's a little messy, but I still enjoy the show. Right. Right. So it doesn't completely pull me off. Uh, Whereas you watch something like game of Thrones, which even though it's like problematic in the way, if it's depiction of Brown people, um, it still creates specific in this. It still creates distinct cultures that can be separated from each other. And so, you know, like there's like, an incestuous blonde person, that's a Lannister. Right. Right. 
there's a dark-haired, you know, uh, tan man in leathers. That's a Dothraki, right? Like, it creates boundaries. And I don't think that's a failure of imagination. I think that that's smart world building. And you have to like a certain kind. Like, some another author said this, like, I don't know where, but she said, like, you have to like a certain kind of mess to just enjoy shows where those questions aren't answered, right? And that's fine. Like, sometimes we just love, I love watching D- fantasy movies where the special effects are not good and, and I'm like, sure. well, there's just dragons and it's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it's fine. Um, but I think that the more an author pays attention to things like that, the more I feel invested in the book. But I also, I mean, one of the, another big like discussion, I guess, with fantasy is how some authors can really thoughtlessly reproduce Um, like colonialist ideas or racist ideas. I mean, so I do think it's also, you know, if it's in your world and you haven't thought about why, then chances are seem pretty good that you might be doing something harmful. And there's been a lot of, in YA especially, people who, you know, the book just doesn't make it because advanced readers get a look at it and are like, what are you doing? From somebody, you know, I think that there was a call for diverse fantasy years ago when We Need Diverse Book first started in 2014 um, for diverse fantasy. And I think that the answer to that was things like, let me just reproduce our current prejudices, put a a knife or put a sword into somebody's hand and like a kilt or whatever warrior outfit they're going to wear and just call it a day. And I think that... That is just lazy, you know? That's also a fantasy that I don't want to read. I think that, like, what I'm craving is diverse... I don't like using the term own voices, but, like, own voices. (laughs) Fantasy um, with romance. With with romance as the A plot. That's tricky. I mean, not... Not just because we need more, right? We need diverse books, but also because the romance piece feels tacked on so often with fantasy, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's not, it is a B plot or a C plot. Is it because, is the quest plot and a romance plot, are they mutually exclusive? They're se- they're supposed to be separate. So usually, usually, okay. In the the original Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell, right, right. The the thing that Star Wars is based on, right. A young farm boy goes out into the world. Um, women, aka love, or just yeah. sex, depending on who's writing the book. Well, um, they're probably going to die by then. Let's probably be a man. Yeah, right. <laughs> they are something to be attained. Yes. In the hero's journey, in the hero's, like, path to, you know, questum and finding a ring or whatever. I don't know. Um, But when you have, in the fantasies that I've been reading by women, that, the the romance happens a little bit earlier, but it's also, like, such a small detail or like there's one scene and then that's it. And I'm, and I get it. I know it's like everybody hates romance and everybody hates YA and wait, 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 uh, but everybody doesn't hate romance, right? No. So, (laughs) so what is it? Publishers. I think this is what somebody explained it to me as an, was it you? Maybe let's say yes. Is it smart? (laughs) Okay. Is it smart? (laughs) Somebody 
because I, I've had this conversation. Why don't we have more romance fantasy, yeah. like high fantasy from traditional publishers? There's, it's there in, in, in indie pub, but it's not there in traditional publishing as much. Why? Um, and somebody told me, possibly Sarah McLean, <laughs> that romance readers will give a chance to most books if there's a promise of romance, but sci-fi readers, fantasy readers won't read something because there's romance in it. Yes, I that was me, for sure. It's directional, right, exactly. And yet, Sarah J. Moss's last book sold 25,000 copies in print first week. More than that. According to Publishers <laughs> Weekly. Sounds- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> According to Publishers Weekly. Feels like more than that. <laughs> yeah, but... Okay, so here's my thing, and we I think I've said this before on the podcast and other episodes, but, like, sometimes there's a person, there's a book, right? And I, I think we have to sort of name-check Sarah J. Moss and say, like, yeah. these books, from the start, from, like, the beginning of her career, she has been able to just, like, knock it out of the park with readers. Like, she delivers home run after home run after home run, right, to a very specific kind of reader who is looking for a very specific kind of book, right? Mm-hmm. And these are high, what I would call high fantasy. They are right? high fantasy, yes. I mean, I just read a court, uh, no, the sil- the most recent one. A court, the of silver, silver court of Silver Flames. Yeah. And it's like hot. It's super sexy. I want to get to sex in a minute. But like she breaks a lot of, breaks a lot of these like, about these rules of like what can and cannot make a fantasy in that like these books are romance novels start to finish yes. they're just like big ones you know i do want to say you have like you already have amanda boucher but that's like that's already one series not, but th- right. and they're not the same they're, and not, they're not sexy sec- they're not as sexy but what let me just finish what i was saying about sarah so i do think sometimes you're talking when you're talking about somebody like sarah who is like just sort of blowing the doors off. She's, like, stratospheric in some way. You kind of have to, like, leave her out of the conversation in many ways because... She's the exception and not the rule. Right. That's what it feels like. No one else seems to be able to recreate the magic of a court of whatever and whatever. But you have to remember that she's been building toward this for over a dozen books, right? Right. It started with Throne of Glass, her YA. But those early ones... Though that series also sold absolutely bananas, but I mean, right? I think YA. Fantasy. I'm not criticizing. By the way, I'm saying like I wish, like no, no. There's some magic that she there has is. that, like, yeah. I, I wish I had that magic. Speculative fiction in YA is a very big deal, yes. right? It doesn't feel like that is a. Those do not seem as mutually exclusive as fantasy and no. Stuff, and I think that right, That's- like fantasy and YA has romance. There's just no sex on the page right. for the most part. There is Except some, for in these books. The court, the court books are not YA to me because the characters are ni- like they're 1920. Like they're not YA. Kids are, are reading them. sold like YA and kids but are not reading them. So like this goes, but this is a whole different yeah, That's a whole different topic. But like <gasps> they were sold as new adult. Yeah. But I remember in those thorn, that the thorn throne of glass. First, yeah. Those first ones were sexy, and I remember teenage girls saying, like, oh, my God, like, they're, so, like, kind of right. glomming onto them the way, you know, Jen and I glommed onto romance when we discovered it when we were a certain age, too, yes. right? Like, there's that sort of, ooh, this is kind of delicious. Just, yeah, it is. 
It makes me feel things. She was right. Because I think Sarah uh, J. Moss had more explicit sex in her... Uh, I didn't read her first trilogy, so I... Her first uh, series, excuse me. Um, so I don't know. I, I have heard, uh, you know, <laughs> what's... Yeah, in, they have them. But I, I think that because she sort of pioneered the the ultra sexy in YA, um, it, there's almost there was almost a little bit of like it trickled down into other series, right? I but there are very much like angsty, slow, mm-hmm. super slow burn fantasies in YA, like Marie Rakowski, uh, her series the mm-hmm. um, the wicked the wicked Cur- the yeah. The Winner's Curse. The Winner's Curse, which is like a trilogy that I read in less than three days because I mm-hmm. could not stop. Delicious. Right? Such incredible tension. Like, I just wanted them to kiss. And, you know, and um, Mary E. Pearson's uh, The Kiss of Deception, which has, like, a love triangle that I absolutely adore. And those books are like 700 pages long. And I still read, I still managed to read all of them in a day, like each one in a separate day Um, because of that romantic tension. Mm -hmm. But still it wasn't like the way, the explicit sex in the the court of thorn, the the other, you know. And this is where it gets into that conversation about like the sex piece, yeah. right? Which is also, which is in, of course, romance tied up in the romance often. I mean, not always, but often when you're looking at an A plot that is a romance, because for it to be a good romance, it has to be either simultaneously both fantasy, like the journey, the quest, and the romance, a la um, um, Millivane's. Right. A heart of blood and ashes, right? Or it has to be romance first, quest second. Like, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of somebody like, you know, Thea Harrison's Dragonbound, like those mm-hmm. Elder Races novels are very like romance first, quest second. Right. But, and then we get into, but then those books aren't called fantasy anymore. They're right. Called they're paranormal. called paranormal. And they're like thrown into the corner. I mean, they're not in the corner, right? Because they're, for many, many years, they were, like, keeping romance afloat, right? But <laughs> they're thrown sort of off to the side as, like, well, they're not part of the cir- the fantasy circle. Mm-hmm. You know, if you went to a, you know, a f- the fantasy section of a bookstore, you wouldn't find paranormal romance in that section. You'd find it over in, in romance. romance. In romance. You'd find Presley yes. Cole in romance. Yes, Despite the fact that, like, every book is a quest, there's a giant world. Yeah. Paranormal, to me, is urban fantasy with romance, right? That's that's what it always has been to me. Um, And I don't read as much of it as I do high fantasy because I just want to get lost in that world. Like, Daniel Jensen's The Bridge Kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. I want... I want... That that was the last one where I was just like, holy crap, this is a cool fantasy world with rules and stakes and kingdoms and, like, a hate to love that is just really delicious. So, but what's the difference, I guess? I'm going to, I'm just going to ask, I'm asking because I want to, like, probe on that. Yeah. So is it, is it because you, Zoraida, prefer high fantasy to contemporary fantasy 
Or is it, like, that you, Zoraida, are looking for, like, a big, giant world? Because Paranormal does deliver that, Paranormal has to create a brand new magical system for me to be like, oh, that's not like every other magical system I've, I've already read. Which fantasy has to do, too. I see. But I think paranormal... Right. I mean, I get it. Like, paranormal is kind of like, if you're going to read a shifter romance, a lot of that is just like you know what to get. There's not really a whole lot of new things. Or, I mean, okay, like, let's talk about IED, for example. I mean, it's 18 books in, and, like, listen... The accession hasn't really started yet. But interestingly, like, I, at the beginning of that season, when we started the podcast, I told Zoraida, like, oh, my God, you got to read these books. And they didn't land the same way for her that they landed for us, likely because she's like, what the hell? This world is, like, has no good rules. Right. (laughs) Which we now know, right? Like, we've talked about how... Cressley retcons a so lot of things, stuff right? in the later books. I think fantasy, like when you go on for so long, you sort of have to break your own rules and retcon. Though yeah. I do, right. I do think that. Well, I mean, you're a Star Wars writer. Like that's a perfect example of like <laughs> a <Right>. burn. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no. But just the Star Wars world. Star is, Wars yeah. does it does retcon things. Yes, it doesn't have. You don't have a choice when you're writing something that's forty years old. You right. just can't. Yeah. Right. How do you surprise your reader? You make them fucking angry. Palpatine. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what Raylo could have been if it had been written by a woman. But oh, I stop. also think, but it also sounds like paranormal and sex have something that fantasy romance, I mean, or no. No, see, like, I think that fantasy can have sex. Sure. There are a lot of, like, the, the, Dudes writing high fantasy, which I generally don't read because, like, there's, like... Say no more. Too much rape. It's very rapey <laughs> and, like, rape. you know, whatever. Um, so, I... But they write sex in it, and I... But it's not romantic. That's what it's, I mean. It's, it's not a romance. Right. Because, like, Jamie and... Sex happening. Sister is, fuckers can happen, but, like... Right. That's not sex. Like, the one, the... um, What's his name? That very tall Dutchman who was also in Game of Thrones. What's his name? I don't know. Help Dutch. Me. I know. Wait, my, what? Maybe he's not Pedro Dutch. Pascal, the Mandalorian, is in Game Are of Thrones. Are you talking about Jason Momoa? No. Shush. <laughs> Sorry. It's coming. He's Dutch. I know. No. He's a Nikolai Koster Waldau. Oh, yeah. yeah right? Yeah, he yeah. has this, like, beautiful potential. There's, like, this hint at, like, a real love story. A real love story with a uh, And with then Brienne. they just... They destroy it. They just yeah, they break it in half. Right. Oh wait, that is Jamie Lannister. That's Jamie Lannister, and he goes back to his sister, and they die together. Spoilers, everyone. Sorry, he died but- protecting the woman he loved. That was a terrible British accent, but uh, yeah, I mean, but that's no ro- a romance novelist would never. Right. Would but never. I mean, I want to talk about this because I feel like one of the bargains in a romance, like fair or not, is that the sex is transformative. Right, and once your main couple, main characters have that sex, it changes them in some way, right? Moving forward, and I don't in fantasy that doesn't necessarily sex doesn't have to have that role, but also so, love is the quest in Rome. Love right? is the quest. Right. So if you there's a book called um, A Song of Blood and Stone by L. Penelope. It's part of the Earth Singer Chronicles, and it's like there's a 
huge division sort of like thing separating these two kingdoms and there is fantasy racism but the cultures are built really beautifully the author is a black woman and she she has a love story that has a really good payoff for me because by the time it showed up I was like I wanted them to get together and now they're boning I'm so happy and Mm -hmm. and nobody had told me that this book had a romance in it it's still a b-plot but I was like, if somebody had told me this book had a romance, like a prominent romance, I would have read it three years ago. So is it is it patriarchy? I mean, is is it the same reason yeah, why that nobody pays attention to romance? Why like, don't fantasy as readers want romance in their fantasy? I do think that readers want it. I think readers want it so much. So what's the problem? The publisher is the publisher there. I think the problem is the is publishers. Are they going to publish? What is the life? You know, you guys were talking about lifespans of tra- of mass market and trade and all these things. And so in another episode, and so I are are romance readers going to pay $28 for a hardcover that comes out for a high fantasy from a high fantasy publisher? Are they going to pay twenty dollars for this? Right, right, right. Because most sci-fi other people doesn't go to 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 mass market. Right. No, and this is the crazy thing, right? Because it feels to me like you could do it and serve both markets. Sure. Like you could you could serve high fantasy readers kissing, right? Like Mm -hmm. you know, they I I struggle with anybody being like. No, I don't want romance as a like significant plot. It doesn't have to be an A. And I mean, I appreciate I'm not the like, but it does feel like I want an A plot. Renee Adier, she her her books are big, beautiful romances. Her first series, um, I forgot. Um, hold on, I'm, I, I, uh, I want to say it. Look it up. Um, wait, wasn't her first one the retelling of the Shahrazad? Shahrazad, yeah. yeah. Um, Her new series does not have as much romance as people claim it does. The Beautiful, no. The Wrath and the Dawn is what we're talking about. Renee Adier's The Wrath and the Dawn is an example of YA that has a very powerful love story that's the A-plot because the point is that she has to seduce the guy. Yeah. That's why it's a romance. That's why it's romance as an A-plot. As a romance novelist, right? (laughs) <laughs> we have to have a reason for the love story to happen too. Yeah. Right? Like that's just good writing. Like if you're putting a romance in the book as an A plot or a B plot or a C plot, like it should have a reason. They should, these two people should, or multiple people, however many people there are, should have a reason for falling in love by the end. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and that, but that series, the Wrath and the Dawn series was really popular. Yeah. But I mean, and we also forget there's, there's like, Twilight, which I know we're kind of not allowed to talk. We're not supposed to talk about it as a YA, like in YA, but it is YA. It's it, YA, YA and it was there and it was a juggernaut, right? So, was, you know, and- I, I don't like when people talk about it as like the foundation of YA because YA existed for decades before that. No, but it was a juggernaut. It did but change it was, the It game. changed the way that people dole out advances in publishing. It changed, you know, it, it did change a lot of, I think, structurally uh, how voice impacts characters, like character-driven novels like that. Well, and for, like, years, you could not throw a stone without hitting a, a love triangle. Mm-hmm. 
in right. YA, right? Oh, I still yeah, for think, sure. and it was all like yeah. big kind of fantasy books with a love triangle in them. And so for a while, that was what these books, what YA was delivering and maybe still is, but well, but it feels like that's sort of also not fantasy. Yeah. I mean, I would say like the love, love triangle. Twilight's paranormal, right? Sure. I would also just say yeah. like the love triangle in YA exists out in every, right? Because it's always about like who you are. Right. Right. It fulfills two different parts of what yes. you need. Right. I have a tiny love triangle in my Hollow Crown duology, Incendiary Illusionary. And in, but Incendiary is like a political espionage high fantasy, and there's an allusion to romance. Book two, Illusionary, is a straight up like romance is the a is like the a plot and b plot are entwined. In so the, the second ro- book. In the second book, the romance and the quest are necessary to be in order to get to the end of the book. Did you plan it that way? Were you like, I'm gonna start and like appeal to fantasy? It's like straight fantasy readers. Oh, and then, and like, then I'm in. gonna write the love story and sort of trick them into loving No. That. Because I I did not do that. I would that's that feels like a smart strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there it is for the next series. Next series. So I think that the reason why that happened was because the point, if I was able to have the prince in book one more, it would have been more like the romance would have taken up more time. But because the way that you get to know the prince is through memories and that she steals, that my main character steals, and he becomes this composite that she doesn't know what to make sense of. Um, you don't truly get to know him. You know him through, like, through secondhand. It's like getting to know somebody through story. Um, and so who is this real person? And you get to know who he is in book two. And one of the best compliments I ever received was, like, a reader who told me that she got, that I, that she started shipping the prince and my main character without even with the prince only having like three chap like three right. scenes right appearing only that's a chap- romance reader that's a romance <laughs> that's a romance reader, reader. <laughs> right exactly <laughs> and so book two is just a straight up it's a straight up romance love story right and and that's what I wanted to write and that's what I needed to write because I wrote this book during pandemic <laughs> yeah can I can I ask another question and this is more like um because I I uh, I am not a very good reader of high fantasy. I get distracted and don't pay attention to, like, the world mm-hmm. building. But so, like, low fantasy is perfect for me because I'm like, oh, okay, I get New York. Now I just have to, like, pay attention to this other thing. I don't have to understand it all. But one of the other things that strikes me as being potentially, like, kind of tied into world building is, like, I feel like in fantasy there's, like, generations Right? Like, time is an, another really important factor. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. about there's um, the Daughters of Saria um, by Elizabeth Grace. Like, the it essentially is, um, they're like angels. Like, Lilith is, um, like, kind of has some daughters. and But, like, the first book is, like, 1587, but then, like, book four is, like, now. Which I think is, like, a really cool thing that you can do in in fantasy is, like, the way that people interact with, like, their ancestors or their descendants 
feels like you can build that into a romance, into a, like a fantasy in a way that is harder to do. Like, you know, in a contemporary romance, like, yeah, you have siblings or parents, but like the weight of the way that like culturally plays out, I, do you th- is that true or is that just like something I'm, I don't know, like I think even about Game of Thrones or whatever, right? So. It, like family? Yeah, or just like time. I mean, I think that there are some families that are, mo- some some stories that are more epic. Okay. That take up more Epic, space. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, Fonda Lee, the, you know, Jade City. That's mm-hmm. it. Like, it's all about generations and families and this, like, holding on to power as a family. Yeah. It doesn't have, it doesn't have romance. It has, like, a couple of sex scenes in book two. But, like, the romance, I was just like, this is such a great opportunity. You know, this, like, the, the head of this mob family chose, like, a girl with no name and, like, no magic. Like, uh, this, you know, could have been, could have been, those books are still fantastic. Or, or even like in Star Wars, like I grew up on, you know, like Princess Leia yeah. and Han Solo, but then like the way you can like then expand that world is like you add a generation or you, I mean, so it also seems like because the world is there, you, right? Like if you build some kick-ass world in fantasy, it seems to you be- You want to stay. Yeah, you want to stay and your readers want to stay. That's true. I mean, look at, and again, back to, to Sarah J. Maas, right? She has several sisters. And so after the trilogy with the first couple, you get the sister stories. Well, um, again, a real like romance. It's very romance thing. Yeah. We know, right. That Sarah J. Maas is a really huge romance fan too. Yes. So that's true. So you and can I, see it. So is Renee, like you can mm-hmm. really see it in some writers, yeah. the writers that really push the romance forward. Yeah. I think that, I feel like this is something that people have been calling for a lot more. And I think that with the new generation of editors that are coming up, um, I had this conversation with, with my editor who's, who edited my, um, uh, inheritance of Orchidia Divina, right? That publisher, Atria publishes like so much romance. And, and, and I'm like, and you guys have some fantasy, but why don't you have both? And, and, the, you know, I feel like I'm given the answer, not from her, but from other people who are like, oh, nobody's writing it. And I like, I refuse to believe that mm-hmm. because I think that there are people writing it, but I, I want like, I want these expansive worlds by POC, by queer people, like, where are they? I think sometimes that gets said so many times that writers internalize, like, what you can and cannot do, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if you want to sell, you know, a fantasy the way N.K. Jemison sold fantasy and just blew the doors off, you have to do it without sex. You have to do it without romance. Right. Or this is something I want to Because if you do it with or with if you do it with sex or with romance, then you have to be able to sell Sarah J. Moss levels of books. Sure. Right. Yeah. And it's I mean it's a nonsense thing. Like, but we all go through it, right? Like in historicals, it's like, well, you know, Scots don't, you know, don't sell as well as everything else. Or like or whatever. Right? If you put a book on a boat, you're gonna sell fewer books. So maybe don't put really? a book on a boat. Mm-hmm. And the reality is it's like that's just it's lore. <laughs> right. It right. It's I think that the market is constantly changing. And the truth to me, after you know, having pub- been publishing since 2011, is that publishers don't 
actually know what the market holds because they don't create the market. Readers create the market. Mm -hmm. And so if there's enough of a demand and if something takes off, then, then you have the publishers who are playing copycat, right? The year that my Vicious Deep Mermaid series was bought was the year that every mermaid book was bought because trends chase each other, right? but publishers don't create trends. Authors do. And if we realize that we have this power, we should just write whatever the fuck we want. So get together with all your friends, Zoraida, and say, (laughs) we're all going to write a romance plots in our next. (laughs) So one of the other questions that I have, and one of the things that I've been thinking, that I was thinking about over the last week, is um, when we talk about fantasy, I feel like there's something to... and it's sort of a half-baked question because I'm probably wrong, but it's there's this question of power, like meaning when the character has some sort of magical power or some sort of control or, or comes into his or her power, right? That feels like it's really hero's journey shit happening, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, but in, and, and in romance, especially in adult romance, right, the power isn't often discovered. It's already in the hands of the character at the beginning in a paranormal say, right? Okay. So I think, so I've been thinking about like, where's the line in paranormal between, you know, what makes a paranormal versus a fantasy? And I was thinking about Jasmine Silvera's Death Dancer, which is the first in a series. Um, the here the the heroine is a dancer, and it's set in sort of a high uh, an alternate universe where dancing can bring it is used to communicate with the gods. And there's you know been a gods war, and um, essentially dancing is the way that people that that cultures get close to get close to gods. And the hero is a necromancer and needs a dancer to, you know, whatever the thing is <laughs> <laughs> to do to do stuff. Um, and so I think about that because I think in this in that particular book, the heroine knew you know she's a dancer. She also was a, I I really love that she has um like a hip, a problem with her hip. And so she realizes that like very soon she is not going to be able to dance at the same level that she has been dancing. Um, and he finds her and he feels like she is the dancer that she that he needs in order to get his necromancing business done. Um, and I think that in her case, she doesn't fully understand how powerful she is as a dancer. And I think that that felt, that feels somewhere in there is the difference between, is the line for me on, you know, magic in paranormal versus magic in fantasy. fantasy. I think that it just really depends on where the, where the character is starting. Mm. And maybe this is a choice that just, that people just make because I don't think every high fantasy needs to be a quest. Okay. Right. It can, there has to be other, there are others journeys aside from the hero's journey because the hero's journey is about change. But if a character, like if a high fan, and I'm, and I'm, I'm failing. That's the thing though. Like I'm failing to, to come up with. I mean, we've talked about Gail character, characters, the heroine's journey, which is about community building as opposed to. Have you read that? 
Uh, I have not read hers, but I have read Maureen Murdoch's The Heroine's Journey, which was a response. It might be based on Maureen Murdoch, but Maureen Murdoch's was a response to Joseph Campbell saying that, like, uh, like women should go on the hero's journey. And, and, and it is that women create community. So, but may, I think that Maureen Murdoch's might be the pro, like the, sure. the predecessor mm. of whatever Gail Carriger is doing. Yeah, there are other journeys, but. Maybe that's the pe- that that's a piece of it too. Rome uh fantasy just hasn't gotten hasn't sort of I don't know, but it feels like it must. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it must and it has I to mean, it, it's somewhere. gotten there in your hands, right? I mean, yeah, because but see my, and mine is about mine's about redemption, right? Uh, this this girl already has the power and she's already made mistakes with the power. So it's about redemption um and saving a kingdom. Um, and I think that's why I don't spend a lot of, t- I spend, there's a lot of questing because I love quests mm-hmm. personally. And sure. maybe that's just why, like the things that keep getting picked up are the thing, like if we're all writing the things that we love and a lot of us loves quests, then, you know, um, you're going to get a lot of these kinds of fantasies. Um, when you were, gro- did you come to fantasy early? I came to I came to urban fantasy, so I started reading books about vampires since I was thirteen. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it, it does feel like all of us, right, who write genre, and that's what we're we're always talking about, and it's what you guys talk about on Deadline City so often. Is like yes, this. Sorry, I, we should have said that from the beginning. Zoraida and Danielle Clayton have a really wonderful writing podcast called Deadline City. We have a should. lot of world building episodes. If you guys want to listen to those, Ooh, we'll yeah, link to I them was, in show notes. There's an yeah. episode where you talk about The Witcher, and um, and I <laughs> love it because you were talking. You talk it. it it came to The Witcher through a conversation about rules, like, and how if you set down rules, they have they have to be followed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true of everything. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, you know, at the beginning of this podcast was um, what you can learn from fantasy. And I do think, like, we all set down rules at the beginning of our books, and we have to follow them. Characters have to follow their own rules. Paranormal versus high fantasy. And, I like, I think to me, paranormal just, it's just that the rules are more tied to the real world. I feel like, because paranormal is fantasy, it's just a subset of fantasy. And I think the reason why it does better, it does, because it does better in adult. Like, we haven't had a resurgence of paranormal in YA. And, and I think that the reason is why, because publishers just, they kept, putting out the same book by different authors. And then there was nothing like answering the question, what's different about this? And I think that if, you know, the call, there's a call for a resurgence in vampire fiction. Um, But again, like, are you just giving us the same vampire fiction as before? Because if it's, if you are, then it's not going to do well because people have already read that book. So what is, what's going to be different about this time around? And so I think that like, I don't know, I, I, I feel like there are a lot of missed opportunities in fantasy. I mean, uh, there's a, there's a book that somebody keeps recommending to me, um, uh, called Cushiel's Dart. I don't know if you've read it. Oh yeah. That's like uh, a proto typical recommended a lot. Like, yeah. That's yeah. That's like by Jacqueline Carey. fantasy. Right. And it's like fantasy and it has apparently some it has romance in it. It's, yeah, it's not the least problematic book you've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's a fantasy. It is 
when you say fantasy romance, like the first book that comes to my mind is Kashil's Dart, but it's old and, you know, yeah, it's from carries like the, all the weight that older romances yeah, right. carry. Right. It's from 2001. So that's like a million years ago by now. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I feel like there has to be an answer. I'm trying to work on it because I need this. An- I hate when I have like unsolvable problems because mm. no problem is un- like truly unsolvable. And so but- the answer is like, I'm just going to write what I want to read. I do think that to your point about, you know, are people going to spend $28 on, you know, a romance, a fantasy romance when they could, you know, spend $7 on it. Right. I think that what other, what we're seeing happen in trade in ro- with romantic fiction, right, in trade mm-hmm. is they're putting the books out in trade mm-hmm. and they are romances mostly. But they have less sex, and they're more expensive, and they're, I hate to phrase it this way, but they're tricking contemporary fiction, like commercial fiction readers into reading romance. They're not pulling the reader through to romance, right? They're saying, you like this, and it's different than everything that's you know, that's over here. Right. Okay. And it's less sexy and it's more expensive. And I think it's because publishing is, I mean, I keep coming back to it's because publishing is ashamed of romance too. Right. 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 Everybody's ashamed of kissing. I, I feel like my editor and my editor for illusionary at Little Brown did encourage me to, I was like, I'm just going to put a ton of romance in here. And she was like, that's great. I want to hear that. Um, yeah, obviously when, when we say like publishing doesn't, is yeah, ashamed of romance, right. we don't mean like every person. But, no, not every yeah, person. Right. But I do think that like, I, I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where they're not. And so the question is like, what are agents going to do to acquire, like who's in, who's in charge of, of making these changes? Are the writers, because writers are writing it. But I think, again, writers, it's scary out here as a writer, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you and I have been around for a long time. We've written a lot of books, the two of us. And I still set, like, set out my plan for the book that I'm writing and think to myself, like, oh, but if this doesn't work, like, you know, is that the end of Sarah McLean? And it's like, so I think that there is a very, and I... But it feels much more intense almost for fantasy writers because you guys are working with, like, big series. Right. And if you have one that sort of blows the doors off, you have to repeat the— That, right. You have to do it again. Yeah. And and if you can't do it the exact same way and get the exact same, you know, huge sales numbers, huge attention, you have to, like, go live in a cave. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and then for come back with a different pen name come back with yeah i mean it's different than romance right like we have to do it too like we have to hit the hit the bell every time too but it's a different kind of fear i, I think, think you know for me i feel like i'm still trying to i'm still trying to find that sweet spot where there's a series that like I, and I, I don't think i'm gonna write a series i think i'm gonna write like one huge epic standalone 
you know, just full with romance and magic and see how that works. Because I'm, I'm sort of like, as a mid-list author, I, people are still buying my books, but I think I get a little bit more of a leeway into, um, still, I'm still able to explore what I want to explore without like reader, uh, expectation. Right. Like there's some freedom in that too. Because people are still discovering me. Yeah. There's more freedom in that. And I think that the people who already know me know that it's like, okay, I'm going to get magic. I'm going to get some sort of family dynamic and I'm going to get romance. And, but that's something that I've been building for years. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we'll see what happens since now I'm out of contract and have to figure out how I'm going to feed myself. <laughs> I'm not worried. You'll be able to yeah. sell more books. You're going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> can we wrap up, though, with some of your favorite fantasy romances, things that you do think would qualify? I know you've mentioned some kind of throughout the course of the episode. But I feel like, you know, outside of A Heart of Blood and Ashes, I, I, I mostly end up reading Paranormal. So are there some that you think our listeners would want to read? I mean, they're mostly YA at this point, right? Like the the um, the Kiss of Deception trilogy by Mary E. Pearson is fantastic. El Penelope's series, The Earthsinger Chronicles, um, it's up to four books now, and there are different couples in in each book, so you don't have to you don't follow the same couple the whole time. Marie Rakowski's The Winner's Curse is still my one of my favorite YA trilogies that has the, one of the best slow burns ever. In Adult, The Bridge Kingdom by Daniel Jensen, which is a hate to love. Um, it started off as an audio book original, and it was it's about um, a princess who essentially has to get rid of all her sisters in order to be chosen to save her kingdom by marrying an enemy, an enemy king. And so, and she has to like deceive him and and seduce him but Yay. she falls in love obviously <laughs> and it's 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 pitch perfect it's so good and the i i i haven't clicked you know one you know immediately clicked a um a sequel, sequel so hard as i did that book so that was that I was agree. really the phenomenal um sarah so sierra simone's a language in thorn series to me is speculative because it has that like sex magic but it's also very it's very very kinky too i love it and it's beautifully beautifully written very that's romancy that's very romancy oh for sure and the, i would consider that fantasy it, it under the speculative umbrella because of like the weird sex magic that happens but it's you know it's not high fantasy or anything like that and is you it? brought up amanda boucher earlier yeah. amanda boucher yeah the first book in that is a promise of fire yes yeah so please give me more high fantasy <laughs> romances Zoraida, tell everybody about Illusionary and Incendiary, or the other way around. I mean, you mentioned them a little bit, but that's like your newest book, right? So you can also pitch, 
give us the elevator pitch on that. So the Hollow Crown duology is a high fantasy series. It is set in an, a world inspired by Inquisition Spain. Um, it's about a girl with the ability to steal, ma- steal memories. And as a kid, she was used by the enemy king to steal memories from, you know, people he wanted to to know all their secrets and she was used as a weapon uh and because of that her people the moria were a lot of them were killed and so the book starts 10 years later where she is now a rebel among her people with her people and she returns to after her the love of her life and uh her commander gets taken she returns to the palace to slit some throats and actually you know get information and kill the prince whom she hates. Um, book two, I would just be spoiling everything if I tell you book two. Book That's two is, is, is a love story um, slash quest, which continues Renata's story um, with said enemy prince. <laughs> she hates And it. magical realism coming up in September. And in September. In September, I have the Inheritance of Orchidia Divina. And this cover is beautiful. So gorgeous. Yes. Um, and this book um, took me like three, four years to write. Uh, I sold it in 2017. It's finally coming out now. Oh, my God. It's um, a family drama. Somebody, I would pitch it as Practical Magic meets 100 Years of Solitude. Somebody told me that when they read it, they felt like it was like Knives Out meets Isabella Allende. And I was like, thank you. That Fair. That's so amazing. Because nice. <laughs> there are a lot of family secrets. It's um, about three cousins who inherit their grandmother's very strange magic. Um, and then they get invi- when they get invited to their grandmother's death day, essentially, funeral. Their grandmother's still alive, but she's like please come to the house, please come to our homestead, I'm dying. And um, after their grandmother passes and they receive their inheritance, seven years later, an unknown entity is killing off all all of the family members. And so these three cousins have to return to Guayaquil, Ecuador, which is where I'm from, uh, to figure out their grandmother's past and her very sordid past and what happened, what she did in order to get this magic. And how they're going to survive. I can't wait to read it. I just realized we introduced ourselves, but we didn't say this was Faded Mates. But it is, in fact, Faded Mates. Um, And if you love a high fantasy romance and you have recommendations, share them with Zoraida and with us on Twitter and uh, Instagram. Now tell everybody, Zoraida, where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter. I tweet way too much. Um, I'm at... Same, girl. Same. <laughs> Z, the phrase Z like in Zorro. Um, and my other personality, Zoe Castile. Zoe with a Y, Castile with one L. Uh, and on Instagram, I'm the I'm Zoraida Solo, like Han Solo. So that's where I spend most of my time. <laughs> nice. Thank you so much for coming and teaching us about fantasy. I hope I was helpful. And I know that there are a lot of high fantasies in the indie pub space. Um, And I think that I don't want to make make anyone feel bad. You know, I know that I know that it's existing out there, but I do think that we need to put pressure on traditional publishers to like give 
writers these opportunities and to show that, like, put some respect in romance and that it does belong in high fantasy and other fantasies. Um, considering you just talked about respect and romance, I feel I need to tell everybody that I'm currently reading um, a monster bordello romance. Fine. Um, called, <laughs> I'm going to recommend it. I'm not done, so I apologize if like it really goes off the rails by the end, but I'm really enjoying it. It's called A Lady of Rook's Grave Manor, and it's basically a heroine who really loves sex in sometime in history is employed in a bordello that services monsters. <laughs> I, men who turn well, men who turn right into now. monsters. That sounds phenomenal. It and I'm phenomenal. really it's literal really monster fucking. It. it is almost wall to wall monster we, fucking. When we sign off of here, I need to tell you about my plans for the future. <laughs> Ooh, Which may exciting. involve literal monster fucking romance. Um, anyway, this is Faded Mates. We are produced by Eric Mortensen. You can find us at fadedmates.net where you can find transcripts and links to gear from Jordan Denae and links to uh, Kelly, best friend Kelly's sticker club. And now there's a, there's a special deal. Yes. If you enter in Faded Mates into the coupon box or a note to her with your first shipment, she will add in a sparkly Faded Mates sticker, and I've seen them, and they are awesome. So you definitely want one of those. They're amazing. Also at FadedMates.net, you can find um, all of the music from the show, which I'm sure this one will be Amazing. Exciting. Look, if blood sugar sets sex magic doesn't make it in there somewhere, I'm going to be Love real that mad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's it. Tell us about great fantasy romances that you've read. We will make sure that if you don't tag Zoraida, that she gets tagged so that she, her TBR pile also topples this week. We hope you're all reading great romance. And thank you, Zoraida, again.